afternoon, everyone, and thank you for attending this afternoon's webinar on You Can't Say That, the intersection between defamation law, employers' liability, and rights of employers to control employees' communication. My name is Sylvia Alcaraz. I'm a managing associate in the Disputes and Risk Advisory team at Denton's. I'm joined by my colleague, Julia Leeds, who is an associate in our employment and safety team. Before we begin today, I would like to play an acknowledgement of country recording from Auntie Manya. Nangamanlari, I'm Auntie Manya, and on behalf of Dentons and everyone here today, I would like to recognise the stories, traditions, and living cultures of the land on which we meet. We acknowledge the traditional custodians of this land and their continued connections to land, sea, and community. And we pay our respects to elders past and present. Nangaman Ladi. So today we're going to be looking at the intersection between defamation law and employment law and how that might come up in a workplace context. The way the presentation has actually worked out quite organically really does represent the true intersection between these two areas of law. So Julia and I are going to be throwing to each other on different slides um, rather than it being half me and then half Julia. There are broadly three sections, what defamation is and how that intersects with employment law. Then we'll go to employee social media use and the importance of policies. And we'll end with some everyday best practice tips. Now, obviously employment law focuses on the relationship between employees and employers and defamation law deals with protecting a person's reputation from false statements. We're all reasonably familiar with what employment is, but what is defamation and how common is that from a day-to-day -day workplace perspective? So I thought I would start with a few quick stats and painting the picture of what defamation actually looks like in Australia. So this pie chart here shows you a breakdown of all reported cases in 2022. Before I forget and go any further, I should credit Her Honour Judge Judith Gibson, the defamation list judge in the District Court of New South Wales, um, for this information, Her Honour publishes an annual case law analysis and statistics on defamation cases. As we see in 2022, across Australia, there were 26 reported cases, and these don't include any that were settled outside of court. It may surprise you to know that only 8% of those cases, which are two of the 26, involved traditional media outlets. The other 24 involved everyday people like you and me, many of them in everyday situations, emails, Google reviews, statements made at meetings, and there was one that involved um, a matter, matters published on an election leaflet. But the key stat that I wanted to draw your attention to is that of social media, because you'll notice that we talk a bit about that throughout the session, and it's one of, if not the biggest risk for employers, and not just because I think social media provides very easy access to publish um, defamatory content with such ease, but also because law is really struggling to regulate it and where to draw the line in terms of liability. Before we move on, one more quick stat. So most defamation trials take place in New South Wales, as the table shows. There are a couple of reasons for this. Um, namely, I think the cost benefits that are available to plaintiffs in New South Wales being that there's no cap. Um, and possibly another factor is that we have special specialist defamation lists in the Supreme Court and also the um, district court. 
So now that we've got a little bit of an understanding as to the general landscape of defamation claims, before we launch into the hardcore nitty gritty, let's set the scene and let's have a look to see where these risks might actually take place in the workplace. Julia, I'm going to go to you. Tell us a little bit about how defamation risks arise in the workplace. Yeah, so some of the most common circumstances that we see um, include when comments are made by an employer about an employee during a workplace investigation. Um, so an example of this may be the publishing and circulation of an investigation report that includes adverse findings about a particular employee. Um, when an employee makes a statement or complaint about another employee, um, allegations of defamation can also arise in those circumstances. Um, a common example of this is complaints relating to sexual harassment, where there may be a denial that the conduct has occurred. Uh, statements made by an employer following the departure of an employee for the business is quite a, a large risk area. Um, an example of this is really um, an email announcing an employee's departure or introducing an employee's replacement. And there are a few case studies that um, we'll go through in today's discussion um, that really outline this risk for employers. Um, there are also some statements made by employees or the employer on social media that can be deemed defamatory. And then some statements that may be published about an employee on a staff notice board, intranet or work email accounts. So we can see that there are legal risks arising out of this intersection between employment law and defamation, and they can actually end up being quite complex. So let's launch in um, now that we understand sort of the everyday situations to be alert to. What are we actually looking for and what is defamation? So defamation is the publication of defamatory matter about a person to a third party that causes serious harm to that person's reputation. In an employment context, as we've seen, defamation may arise if false statements are made um, about an employee that harms their professional reputation. For example, spreading false information about, you know, employer's integrity, um, employee's integrity, performance that may lead to harm their individual career prospects. Now, when I refer to defamatory matter, that means any communication, written communication, verbal, videos, social media posts, and blogging. The critical thing is this, is that the publication of the material must cause an ordinary reasonable reader, viewer or listener, i.e. consumer of that information, to lower their opinion of the person in question. The relevant legislation that governs um, matters regarding defamation is the Defamation Act. I've got the reference on the slide, 2005. Um, there's no Commonwealth legislation, but there is general uniformity as to the concepts, um, which are fundamentally the same across the different states. We'll be talking today in general terms about the concepts, but just to keep in mind that it is a state-based jurisdiction, so there might be some minor differences from state to state. But what does the Act do? So the Defamation Act purports to protect the reputation of individuals and some organisations from unfair attack. And it's also said to provide effective and fair remedies for a person whose reputation has been harmed by defamation. This includes seeking to promote a quick and non-court-based process for resolving disputes. Um, it also contains statutory defences for defending any claims of defamation. We are going to look at defences because they're very relevant from an employment context. Now, elements of a defamation claim. Let's say we're going about our normal day and somebody says, so-and-so says they have a claim in defamation. Worst case scenario, you receive a letter or a concerns notice, which is the technical term under the 
Defamation Act for a letter of demand. How do we know something is defamatory and what would the person actually need to show? Well, there are four elements to a cause of action in defamation, and that is number one, um, a matter which has identified someone, two, that it has been published, three, that it was defamatory, and four, that it has caused or is likely to cause serious harm. We're going to run through the elements just to give you an idea as to how they all fit together when we talk about these case studies. In terms of publication, who can sue? So on this slide here, I've got a list of all those that can sue, but for our purposes today and in the context of the workplace, we would most likely be dealing with, if not exclusively, with individuals. Um, I think the bigger and more important question is who can be sued? And the answer is that you can be sued if you're a publisher, i.e. the communicator of defamatory material. Relevantly, publishers also include owners of social media sites. They can be liable for defamation. There is a very high profile case if you're interested. It's the case of Fairfax Media, Nationwide News, Australian News Channel and Dylan Voller. Um, I'm conscious of time and the amount of content we've got to get through, so we might come to that at the end if time permits. Um, Finally, and most importantly, for the purposes of today's session, yes, you can be sued for defamation as an employer. Um, you can be vicariously liable where the person who has defamed is acting in the capacity of an employee, but we'll go into that a little bit later. So the publication or communication must also refer or relate to the plaintiff. Now, often this is easy to establish because the plaintiff is referred to by name, and if the person's not named, it can be actually sufficient enough to prove that they're identifiable um, for those that you might know a particular fact or some information about them. For example, a comment that relates to the team lead or the manager of the advertising team. For example, you may not name them, but people will know who they are. On defamation, the matter complaint complained of must convey one or more defamatory meanings or imputations. Now, an imputation is defamatory if it causes um, the ordinary reasonable reader, viewer, listener to lower their reputation of the plaintiff. A really important thing to note is that in terms of day-to-day -day practice, an imputation is something that is implied in communication and it's not necessarily what is there written in black and white. Finally, the serious harm column. You'll see that I have a little law reform logo above because I wanted to highlight that this is actually a reasonably new element that came into place in July 2021 following the defamation law reforms. So under Section 10A of the Defamation Act, a plaintiff must now show that the defamatory matter has caused or is likely to cause serious harm to their reputation. Failing to show this can result in a case being dismissed. So this higher bar has certainly made defamation claims harder to prove. But the serious harm test is particularly interesting and I think complex from the workplace and employment perspective. It's much more straightforward in, say, mass media. The reason is this. Technically, in a defamation claim, you only need to publish defamatory matter to one other person. Technically, right? There's some tension here between that and the serious harm test and whether publishing to one person could actually amount to serious harm or whether it's trivial or vexatious. However, as we all know, in the context of workplace and employment law and where the issues tend to arise, it's often in one-on-one -on -one situations, performance reviews, um, 
employee references or smaller sessions, say, for example, investigations. Um, we don't actually have judicial guidance in this context at the moment. Um, so we'll, when we get to the everyday practice tips, it's important to just be on the front foot um, in terms of ensuring that everything that you do is, um, is confidential and that you only tell sort of the people that need to know the information and limit that um, dissemination. I should also note on the amendments in terms of serious harm that they've been adopted in all states and territories except Western Australia and the Northern Territory. So we've looked at the four elements that make up a cause of action for defamation, but the real question is whether or not the claim would ever actually succeed. And that depends on whether or not the author or publisher um, of the defamatory material can show that a relevant defence applied. And this is really the crux of defamation law. It's not a matter of what was said, rather the key question is, is it defensible? I've got here on this slide a summary of the various defences in defamation, but in terms of the workplace, the defence that is most likely to be relevant to the employment relationship is that of qualified privilege, which I've highlighted. Uh, we're going to focus on this defence because it's the one that comes up the most, but I will briefly touch on truth and honest opinion. For an employer, um, the defence of qualified privilege allows an, um, the employer to express adverse opinions about a person's performance or conduct, provided that the communication is um, to people that need to know the information. For example, uh, a manager, a supervisor, or say an external lawyer who's providing advice. Anyone that's relying on this defence, be it employer or anyone else, must satisfy three things. One, that the recipient of the communication has an interest in receiving the communication, that the communication is communicated to the recipient only, and that the publication is reasonable based on a range of different factors. So if an employer communicates it more broadly than is reasonable, then you risk losing the defence of qualified privilege, and that's very important. Also very important is that while qualified privilege is a defence, if there is any malice involved, proving malice will defeat the defence of, of qualified privilege, and that's important to know. But essentially the crux of qualified privilege is that it recognises that in certain circumstances, a person is required to be able to make, you know, frank and uninhibited communication to a recipient without the fear of being sued. Um, a clear example of this is a workplace investigation. Um, I've downloaded a lot of information on that, but to pull it all together into some actual real-life cases, um, Julia has two excellent cases that upheld a qualified privilege defence in the context of a workplace. Julia, I'll go to you on those. Yeah, so a very good example of where an employer has been successful in raising the qualified privilege defence is the decision of Bowdoin and KMC, KMSC Holdings, Proprietary Limited. And um, it's actually a very interesting case where the applicant was a 20-year-old childcare worker who was employed for approximately nine months. And Following the end of his employment, the employer sent an email to 35 parents stating that um, Mr. Bowden had been let go due to disciplinary reasons and that he was not truthful with the employer about his studies, um, along with some other issues. And 
the employee was provided a copy of the email from one of the parents um, and subsequently commenced defamation proceedings against the employer and its sole director in the District Court of New South Wales. And interestingly, the employee was actually successful at first instance, um, with the trial judge finding that the email that was sent to the parents was done so maliciously as its contents went beyond what the parents needed to know and impugned the employee's character. And damages in this case were awarded in the realm of $237,000, which um, for a defamation proceeding is, is somewhat high in relation to an individual. Now, the employer, obviously um, unhappy with the trial judge's findings, successfully appealed the decision to the Supreme Court of New South Wales on the basis that the trial judge had misunderstood the nature of the qualified privilege defence and the meaning of malice, um, as they are both used specifically in the context of defamation. And the court on appeal agreed with the employer and found that the employer needed suitably qualified staff and, and that parents had a vital interest to know that staff members were qualified, um, and that included knowing their names, qualifications, and suitability for the role. Um, the court also found that the employer had established that a parent may be concerned by the recent and sudden departure of a childcare worker and that they might speculate or complain in the absence of any communication from the employer on that topic. Um, and as a result, the parents had an interest in knowing that the information contained in that email was um, to be communicated. Uh, the court also found that the email was not malicious, which was, of course, a difference to what the trial judge had found. So what should employers take away from this particular decision? Um, an employer must always consider on a case-by-case -case basis who needs to know information adverse to an employee's reputation. And particular care must be taken where the communication is also going to be communicated externally. And the assessment on a case-by-case -case basis is particularly important because a case based on the same facts as Bowdoin might have had an entirely different outcome in a different context. So, for example, an employer in the manufacturing industry has no need to inform its customers of the reason why an employee is dismissed. A customer has no interest in knowing about the identity and integrity of the employee, and that information is irrelevant to the manufacture and sale of a product. So this is why it's really vital that employers are making decisions about communication based on the context of their business and on a case-by-case -case basis. Um, and another case that outlines the risks of um, defamation in the workplace and the success of the qualified privilege defence is Wong and National Australia Bank Limited. Um, and this was a case that not only dealt with defamation in the workplace, but it also alleged breaches of the general protections provisions of the Fair Work Act. But um, for our purposes today, I'm just going to touch on the defamation claim that was advanced in, in this matter. Um, and Ms. Wong was employed by NAB as a manager of the internet banking team. Uh, her employment was terminated due to ongoing concerns with underperformance and her, sorry, her poor workplace behaviour. Um, and on the same day that Ms Wong was removed from her role, NAB sent an email to 432 employees confirming Ms Wong's departure and introducing her replacement. Now, 
the email insofar as it related to Miss Wong, and I'll quote it because it's only quite short, the email stated that um, Adam will assume the role of platform owner for internet banking, replacing Lee Wong. We would like to thank Lee for the significant contribution she has made to both the platform and digital, and we are working through next steps with her. So those two sentences in that email were what triggered the defamation proceedings with Ms. Wong alleging that the email imputed that she was incompetent or had engaged in misconduct. And the court found that the email was not defamatory um, and found that had the email been defamatory, NAB had made out its defence of qualified privilege. Um, and that was found because the recipients of the email regularly interacted with the internet banking department and had a legitimate business interest in being informed of the new composition of its team members um, and that NAB provided the information for notification purposes only and was not malicious in its actions. So again, this is really another example. And the key takeaway here is that employers really need to ensure the recipients of communication that may impact an employee's reputation is delivered only to individuals who have a legitimate interest in knowing that information. So um, another aspect of, um, of these matters is really the reliance of the qualified privilege defense um, by employers. And it's really the key defense that many employers are using in these defamation proceedings. So it's important that you're aware of, of how they do impact day-to-day -day operations. So qualified privilege is the main defense um, that would apply from an employment context, but we'll go, there are two more that I'd like to flag. One's the defense of truth, which is important in an employment context, because if you can establish that something is substantially true, then that will be a complete defense. A working example is, is this. Let's say and there's an email that is sent to the team. And in the email, it says, male partner of X team was convicted of a crime. Now that might be true. But the meaning that is conveyed to the reader is that this male partner is who they would be able to identify because he's been named, is that he's a criminal. What the email fails to disclose is that the conviction was overturned on an appeal. What that means in practice is that you wouldn't be able to rely on the defence of truth because um, the imputation that was carried was that he was a criminal and that would be made out. So you'd be liable to be sued for defamation. The other one is honest opinion. Honest opinion is the defence, it sometimes comes up. You don't need to prove the truth of the comment, um, but you just need to prove that they were honestly held opinions and that it needs, it needs to be clearly a matter of opinion and not a statement of fact. Um, there's no legal requirement for that opinion to be reasonable. So it can be very extreme as long as the person publishing it genuinely holds that opinion. So we'll move on to managing risks as an employer. So vicarious liability, number one, um, vicarious liability being that an employer can be held responsible for actions of employees, even if they weren't endorsed by the employer. In defamation, an employer may be held liable for employees' actions if, let's say, for example, the employee makes a false statement while acting within the scope of his or her employment. We see it a lot on social media, and you've probably seen this yourself in bios, where a user will say, views are my own, or words to that effect. 
But there are clearly some challenges and tension here between employment law and defamation, and that's compounded by social media. The challenge is seeking to delineate between the professional and personal conduct of employees, and we'll come to that when we talk about social media policies. But the answer is yes, employers will be required to indemnify um, employees for liability if if it's in connection with the performance of their duties, and that may include being forced to defend a defamation claim or potentially pay damages. It's a completely different story, for example, if an employee posts out of hours about something that is entirely related, in which case you would argue that the defamation risk is theirs for them to own. But as Julia mentioned before, it's important to look at all of these cases on a case-by-case basis because they do vary. Reputational risks is a big risk for an employer, um, and particularly given the reputational risk that is involved with any sort of workplace matters, um, and it's important for employers to have in place training and policies which will come to, letting the employer know sort of what the organisation expects from them. The potential consequences for engaging in defamatory conduct can be very costly and not just monetary, but also reputationally. Investigations. Now, we could spend an entire session on managing investigations um, and managing the risks associated with those. But essentially, um, the crux of it is this, ensuring that we're only reporting facts, ensuring that everything is backed by evidence, ensuring that an investigation is conducted as confidentially as possible, keeping in mind what Julia said before, who actually needs to know about this, even about the fact of the investigation. Um, And finally, social media, which we'll go into in terms of the um, policies as well. But I wanted to touch on one interesting case, which is something you may not uh, have heard of, but it's an interesting case that shows that something seemingly innocent and trivial, like an emoji, can actually give rise to a claim of defamation. So it's not just the spoken or written word that can be defamatory. The language of emojis was actually brought before the court This case concerned two lawyers, Adam Howder, Zally Burrows, and it was the zipper face emoji that is pictured that was used in a Twitter post by Mr Howder. The emoji was accompanied by an article that had the effect that another lawyer, Miss Burrows, had acted unsatisfactorily. The Twitter post in question led Miss Burrows being referred to the Law Society for disciplinary action. And when the Twitter post created by Mr Howder, it contained no text, but the crux of Miss Burrow's claim was that this zipper face emoji carried defamatory imputations, being that she was facing legal proceedings arising, arising from a judge, you know, questioning her competency as a lawyer. So she sued in the district court and Her Honour Judge Judith Gibson was required to consider what this zipper face emoji actually means. So Her Honour looked to the online dictionary of Emojipedia and she found that the zipper face emoji was equivalent in meaning to the phrase stop talking or that it's to be used where something is a secret. It was held by Her Honour that the zipper face or the zipper mouth emoji has the capacity to be defamatory because an ordinary reasonable social media reader may make adverse assumptions based on the particular emoji. Um, A significant aspect of the decision I think was the platform where the imputation was conveyed which was a tweet Twitter, widely accessible by a wide range of social media users around the world, um, and it gives rise to significant reputational damage, which impacted on Miss Burrow's career. So 
The decision is notable and revolutionary, which sets a precedent that an emoji on its own without any, any text can be defamatory. Um, it's also the first case where uh, a court has considered an emoji in written communication in Australia. So timely reminder that this little guy can cause a lot of problems. Finally, on potential outcomes. So what might actually end up happening? So a court may uh, award monetary compensation, and that depends on the loss suffered. In 2022, in defamation cases, the range of damages was from 3,500 to 825,000. It's a big range. Um, you can also be required to provide an apology, removal of material, and sometimes in rare circumstances, permanent restraining orders um, are available. But otherwise, importantly, as I mentioned before, an action in defamation can seriously harm a business's reputation, even if you are successful in defending it. So we know about the risks. How do we go about mitigating those risks? Um, we'll go to employees' use of social media, and Julia is going to talk us through the importance of having policies and the big risk area, which is social media. So use of social media in the workplace is a very common occurrence. Um, and apart from risks relating to defamation, social media use by employees also poses several other challenges to an employer in their day-to-day -day operations. And one of these risks are claims of bullying and harassment. And not only can an employee's private use of social media be grounds for establishing workplace bullying, but it can now also occur outside the physical place of work. Um, so this means that online posts can be deemed bullying regardless of when and where the employee makes the post. Um, any post made on social media can be used as evidence to support allegations of workplace bullying. Um, and this means that Practically, due to the continuous nature of social media posts, the fact that once published, they're published until they're taken down, um, conduct that constitutes bullying can occur outside of work hours. Um, and particularly if that post is viewed by the employee during work hours. So employees really need to be conscious that digital media can be used to bully workers while they are at work, but also while they are not at work. And if employees can access social media at work, including their own personal social media accounts, they can be exposed to online bullying. And this is why bullying and harassment policies should be drafted to expressly include conduct that occurs outside of work hours, but also conduct that occurs on private social media accounts. Um, and an employer can also be liable for the discriminatory acts of their employees on social media if it can be shown that the act was done in connection with their employment. And that's a really important aspect. Um, examples of how a social media post can be connected to employment um, are whether the comments are posted from the employer's own social media platform. So for example, if an employee, if an employee is making a post on the company's LinkedIn profile um, and, it, and it looks like it's being posted by the company itself, um, that's a, a clear connection. Um, if the employee has the company listed as their employer on their social media profile, um, and even prior images or posts may demonstrate a link 
between the employer and the profile that's making the discriminatory comments. And exposure to liability in this realm can be avoided where the employer can demonstrate that it has taken reasonable steps um, to prevent an employee from engaging in the discriminatory acts. And what do these reasonable steps look like? Well, you know, this is not an exhaustive list here on the slides, but um, reasonable steps could include training employees about appropriate social media use, um, providing training on discrimination and harassment, and also having a policy which addresses discrimination and social media use. So how can employers manage the risks associated with their employees' use of social media? Well, employers should be ensuring that workplace policies regarding appropriate behaviour in the workplace, such as your bullying um, policies, your discrimination policies, codes of conduct, all capture behaviour that was conducted using social media. Um, employers should also make sure that they're sharing this policy with all employees and ensure that appropriate training is provided to employees on the content of, um, of the specific policy. For company-operated social media accounts, you should really be limiting who can access these accounts to only staff members who have been trained in the standards and behaviour expected by the employer, or if it's an employee um, that is part of their role, requires access to social media, such as marketing employees. Um, and finally, and perhaps the most important uh, policy that uh, or most important thing that an employer should do is to have a separate social media policy. So say an employee does engage in inappropriate conduct on social media, what rights do employers have to discipline the employee? And employers don't have a broad right to control or regulate an employee's outside of hours conduct, um, including their conduct on social media. However, the courts and tribunals have been prepared to accept that exceptional circumstances may warrant the out of hours conduct of an employee capable of regulation and supervision by an employer. And um, this has been particularly prevalent in cases considering the discipline and termination of employees for conduct occurring outside of work hours. And generally, whether an employer has a right to discipline an employee for out-of-hours conduct will require consideration of whether the conduct has a nexus or a connection to the employment and whether it can be demonstrated that the conduct has or is likely to have a substantial or adverse effect on the employer's business or the employment relationship. And to determine whether an employer has a valid reason for terminating an employee's employment for out-of-hours conduct, um, particularly in, in circumstances that relate to social media, um, the Fair Work Commission has considered a number of factors, um, and these include, and, and this is, not, again, not an exhaustive list, but some of the factors that the Commission has considered um, is the nature of the employer's business or operations, um, the job performed by the employee and the duties and obligations that are owed by that position, um, whether the employee is identifiable as an employee of the employer, uh, the nature and severity of the comments or posts, if the employer has 
a social media policy governing out-of-hours activity, um, and also the reach of the social media activity and whether clients, colleagues, or the public are able to view the post. And Michael Varka and Victoria Police is a recent case that has considered many of these factors in practice. Um, and Sylvia, are you able to flick this slide for me? Sorry. Thank you. Um, and this is an example of where an employee's conduct on social media does not form a valid reason for termination of employment. Um, and in this case, the employee made several posts on his personal Facebook page under the pseudonym Mick V. And the commission actually did not detail the content of the posts, bar explaining that they were vile and racist and was the kind of discourse that should be condemned. So we can all uh, imagine what, what kind of posts these, these were. Um, and Victoria Police submitted that they had a code of conduct and a social media policy that it alleged were breached by the Facebook posts. And the commission found that the posts had actually not breached the relevant policies because none of the comments that were made on social media criticised Victoria Police um, and the officer was not identified as an employee of Victoria Police. Um, the comments that did involve police were actually supportive of police. And um, this one's somewhat interesting, an old photograph of the officer in a police uniform with the then Prime Minister John Howard was too remote a link to Victoria Police purely because the pale blue shirt that was worn by the employee in the photograph had not been a part of the Victoria Police uniforms for a number of years. Um, so that's an interesting fact about the remoteness of, of a connection. Um, the commission also found that nothing else identified the officer as an employee of Victoria Police. So while the commission did find the posts to be distasteful, racist and narrow-minded, it did recognise that the posts were made on personal time in, in a personal space and actually agreed with the employee the employee's submission um, that by using a pseudonym, he was not easily identified as an employee of Victoria Police. Um, so the commission therefore found that the Facebook posts did not give rise to a valid reason for his termination. Um, however, I do note um, that the dismissal was found to be fair due to some other conduct that the employee had engaged in um, that was unrelated to his social media post. So the key takeaway really from, from this matter is to make sure that you have well-drafted policies because the Fair Work Commission, if you are looking at terminating an employee for their conduct or disciplining an employee for their conduct online, if a claim is brought, the commission is going to look at the content of your policy when determining whether there is a valid reason for the termination. Um, so what is the best way to regulate employee social media use? And I'm sure you can all assume what I'm going to say. Um, without a doubt, it's, it's having a social media policy. And a social media policy may be the most important tool for employers in managing the risks caused by employee, employee social media use. 
um, a social media policy can assist with setting clear expectations for employees regarding their social media use. And by setting clear standards of behaviour regarding social media, employees may be less likely to act in a way that breaches the policy. However, you know, if inappropriate use of, of social media does occur, then you have an established policy to rely on when responding to the conduct. And that's a uniform policy that can then be applied to all employees, which assists with your procedural fairness obligations. Um, and without a social media policy, your employees really can't be expected to have an understanding about what they can and can't do online during and outside of work hours. So what should be included in a social media policy? Um, well, a well-drafted social media policy should address at minimum what sort of conduct is and is not acceptable. Uh, for example, um, a prohibition on using social media in a manner that could amount to bullying and harassment or discrimination. Um, the disciplinary measures that are in place when an employee breaches the policy. The policy should also include a confirmation that employees' obligations and duties under their contract of employment and other workplace policies, you know, such as a bullying and harassment policy, do extend to their conduct on social media. Um, the policy should also um, apply to an employee's out-of-hours activities, provided that those activities do have a connection to the employment relationship. Um, a policy should also define the appropriate standards of conduct on work-related communications on social media, um, and if appropriate, it should provide details of the processes and authority for who can engage on social media on behalf of the employer and who can create or access employer social media accounts. So this then come, again comes back to only allowing marketing employees to have access to your social media accounts or people who really need that um, access to perform their duties. Um, the policy should also state that it operates in conjunction with and refers to any separate IT policy um, that, that the employer may have and include details on how the IT systems will be monitored um, and also reinforce that employees are not to share any confidential information on social media without prior approval. Um, so we're now going to wrap everything up today by giving you some everyday best practice tips for what you can do moving forward. So I might flick it back to Sylvia to, to get us started on that. Thank you. So some everyday practice tips. I put some dot points up here, um, which can be, they're very broad and so they can be broadly applied to, for example, an investigation. But really, the takeaway is this. Be clear on the meaning of your words and avoid ambiguity. So use very clear terms when you're communicating. Only say what you can prove or where your source is reliable because you otherwise risk going into the territory of gossip and there's no defence for that. In an employment context, as I mentioned, the most commonly used defence is qualified privilege. However, that defence is defeated where there's malice um, and gossip may be seen to be malicious. Be clear about what you're saying and also what you don't know. Make sure that if an allegation is, for example, rejected, that you also are communicating that the person is rejecting the allegations that are being made. And again, this is important in the workplace investigation, um, allegations of sexual harassment, et cetera. 
Be clear if you're stating an opinion and make sure that's kept separate from statements of fact. Um, we touched briefly on the honest opinion defence and the critical aspect of that is that it won't succeed if that opinion is actually cloaked as a fact. Um, sorry, it's a fact cloaked as an opinion. And finally, liability can extend to where you spread gossip or repeat information. And most importantly, ensuring that when conducting investigations, they're fair, they're confidential, and they're very objective. Some key questions to keep in mind if you're the publisher. So if you're the person, if you're the person, you know, providing employee references, you're drafting internal communications, um, you're uh, um, participating in an investigation, or you're running an investigation. Ensure that who are you talking about? Be clear about that. Um, what are you saying about them and what can, and can they be defamed? How can the statements be defended if you are sued? And limit the information to those who must um, absolutely know the information. Um, and just a reminder of some of the basic tips for managing risks associated with an employee's use of social media um, and the, the impact on, on an employer. Um, a lot of these I've just spoken about and harped on about, but um, just by way of you know, quick summary, um, make sure you have a social media policy and make sure that it's reviewed regularly. This is your greatest tool for regulating employee um, use of social media. Um, also ensure that your workplace policies are drafted to explicitly include conduct that occurs outside of work hours and on private social media accounts um, to the extent that they, you can find a connection to the employment, of course. Ensure that employees are familiar with your policies and that they know where they can access them. And finally, think twice before taking disciplinary action against an employee for using social media outside of work hours if there is no reasonable connection to their employment, but also if you can't deem that it's a breach of your social media policies. And last but not least, we spoke about social media, but I wanted to touch on managing the media briefly because employers have never really been in the media as much as they have following the rise of the Me Too movement. So things to be really mindful of, commenting on ongoing litigation, for example, it is an absolute minefield of risk. Get on the front foot with internal and external stakeholders. You can and you should provide comment to the media, but seek legal advice from your lawyers first so that you don't waive privilege or you don't waive any valuable rights. Be really, really careful of repeating any allegations or claims that will get you into some hot water and prepare an outline of a media release with some key messages that you would ever want to get out in the event of a crisis. So obviously you can't plan for everything, but I think you can plan for common risks that might arise in your particular industry. For example, an obvious one is, say, construction, injured workers, potential fatalities. You would want to have a message in there about safety of workers, for example. You don't get much time to put these together, so it's good to have something to take the edge off if and when um, something happens. And finally, sometimes it is best to let yourself become yesterday's news. So um, I want to thank everyone for taking the time to uh, attend today's presentation. If you have any questions, I haven't seen any come through on the Zoom um, 
yet, but if you would, or have you seen any, Julia? Um, it's not so much a question. We do have one comment that um, says that employers' workplace surveillance policies and privacy guides need to set out also that the employer will be monitoring the employee's social media post. And, um, and that is very true. Um, any IT monitoring um, or, or anything of that nature does need to be communicated to, to employees. Um, and we have one more question from Kara. Um, who's asked, can you give us some more detail on the case you mentioned at the beginning, please? Um, do you, are you talking about the, the case, presumably the Dylan childcare Vola. case or the volumes? Oh, maybe. Are you in a chat with the person? No, I'm not. Oh. <laughs> maybe, do you want to? Why don't I run, I can run through Vola. Yeah, why don't you run through that? Yeah, 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 we've got a little bit of time. Yeah. Um, so Dylan Voller, this is the matter that I mentioned in terms of who can be a publisher. This name is a name that may ring familiar to you, Dylan Voller. Um, Dylan Voller sort of found his way into the public eye after his mistreatment in a Northern Territory detention centre, and he was featured on ABC's Four Corners. So he sued defendant media companies over comments that were made by members of the public in response to um, news articles that were published on Facebook pages on the Facebook page of media organisations. So while the appellants um, in the case are media companies, the decision is actually really important because the effect of the High Court's ruling extended well beyond the media. And it applies to all people, organisations that maintain their own websites and social media pages. This includes non-media companies, so like not-for-profits, government bodies, um, and it's about all websites, including and social media pages, not just Facebook. So the case is really interesting because it demonstrates um, the risk in terms of facilitating the posting of comments by third parties on organisation-controlled websites. Um, and the way to manage that is is in the way of having social media policies in place, as Julia highlighted um, before. So. I think that was the case that we were referring to. I'm not sure. Yes, I, I think we've got a, a subsequent message that says, yes, please. So I think oh. that that's the right one. <laughs> yeah. Okay. No, no. Um, um, I don't see that we have any other questions. If there are any questions, feel free to send them through even after today's webinar and we can get back to you as, as well. I might just add just on that um, mm -hmm. an interesting point. So the High Court actually rejected the argument that was made by the media because the media said we shouldn't be liable for defamation on this um, even though they were controlling the Facebook pages. Um, the argument was rejected by a 5-2 majority. Um, so, yeah, it just I think it's important just because people see this and go, oh, media organisations, but it's actually it actually impacts anyone that controls a social media page. But if you have any other questions, feel free to shoot them through after the session and happy to answer them. Anything else? Well, I think we'll wrap it up there if there's no further questions. Thank you all for taking the time to join us. If you have any questions, our details are on this slide and I think a recording will be circulated, but have a great afternoon. Thanks everyone.